Imagine a Formula One team fighting for a world championship with a year-old car all season because they failed to ever get their new car up to the standard required to race it. It seems unthinkable in modern F1, yet in 2003 this is exactly what happened. This is the story of McLaren's radical MP418, the car that was too flawed to race. Welcome to the latest episode of Bring Back V10s, brought to you by The Race. This is our new retro podcast, if you're joining us for the first time, focusing on the gloriously noisy V10 era of F1 that we consider 1989 to 2005. We'll be bouncing all across that era during our first series, revisiting famous stories and races in a level of depth never seen before. And thank you to our guests who were already with us for our first two episodes where we focused on Alain Prost getting fired by Ferrari in 1991. Today, though, we're focusing on 2003. And remember, our season finale is going to be an episode dictated completely by you, our audience. We want you to send questions and comments to at WeAreTheRace on social media or email ask at the-race.com. And the entire final episode will be led by the topics you want us to discuss. I'm Glenn Freeman, and joining me for a look at this car that Adrian Newey would probably rather forget is F1 journalist Ed Straw, but first, a man who had the, shall we say, misfortune of having to work on the MP418 briefly, former McLaren mechanic Mark Priestley. Mark, welcome. Morning. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, definitely would rather forget it, but here we are talking about it in depth. Yeah, yet somehow we've got you in. Yeah, sorry about that. We'll come up with something better to talk to you about in the future, uh, but you're a very busy man these days. You're not following the F1 paddock around assembling and disassembling cars for Kimi Raikkonen and the like anymore. But tell us what you're up to, because you're an incredibly busy man. <laughs> yeah, pretty busy. And uh, so I left the team, I left McLaren in 2009. And uh, since then, kind of by accident, I've stumbled into a sort of media career, I guess. But it, it's taken on various forms. And I've spent a few years traveling with the circus, uh, working for broadcasters like Sky, doing bits of commentary. But I'm now kind of uh, traveling less, but working perhaps more. So I'm doing um, my own YouTube channel around the subject, uh, everything to do with Formula One and, and perhaps my technical and operational insight that I, I have. Uh, I wrote a book uh, a year ago um, on which covers some of this about the, the MP418 as well and some of my stories and the drivers and teams that I've worked with. So I'm uh, doing a huge amount of things. I've done a series on the Discovery Channel, um, more centered around cars, but uh, that's part of the Wheeler Dealers uh, series that people may know. So loads of cool stuff, uh, but generally it all centers around cars or racing cars. Doesn't sound like a bad life. And is the book still available? Yeah, you can get it on Amazon and uh, Waterstones and many bookshops, but it's still, uh, still doing really well, so I'm really pleased with the way it's gone down. And it was actually a really nice kind of trip down memory lane to go over some of these stories. So yeah, I hope people are enjoying it. Yeah, lovely and perfect thing to promote on a retro podcast. Ed, welcome back. You were with us for the Prost discussion as well, and I'll start this episode by throwing what I now consider the traditional opening question to you. We're three episodes in, so it's a tradition. When we, look back, when we start talking about a new subject, the first thing I want to know from the guests is what is your first memory that comes to mind of the subject? So when you think MP418, Ed, you're probably not quite as horrified as, as Mark is. But what's the first thing that comes to mind? I'm slightly horrified I haven't had the chance to plug my wares, but I will, I will answer <laughs> your questions. I think it's words like farrago, farce, catastrophe, embarrassment, various expletive-laden versions of that. I think it was a monument to ambition over execution, and in doing so, it exposed some of the weaknesses that there was in the way McLaren worked technically. So I think there's, there's kind of a wider story there. It, there's a, there's a, a very big picture behind this. It's not just a car that didn't quite go right. The basic ideas were all sound, but it was just trying to do too much in one go, and it just backfired spectacularly. Lots of nodding from across the table there. So I think... You're on the money. So, as always, we go through this in chronological order. So let's start at what we, we are considering the beginning, which is November 2002, when McLaren are already telling the world that it will start the 2003 season with an updated version of its MP417 car. Now, that wasn't particularly alarming at the time because teams were doing that during a period of stable regulations. Ferrari had done it in 2002 and, and were doing it as well in 2003. David Coulthard did an interview in the Sunday Mirror at the end of December saying when he first heard that news, he was initially nervous about the delay. But there was a lot more testing back then in F1, so McLaren had been busy through the back end of the year. And actually, the way the updated car was performing, there was a reasonable amount of confidence, it seemed. And then at the start of the new year, Ron Dennis, team boss at the time, 
explained to ITV that McLaren was trying to achieve a leap that he said was not easily achievable in a short amount of time, so that is why we are taking longer to develop the car. So that's what was being said in public, Mark. Does that fit with what you recall you guys were being told on the inside at the time? Yeah, I think, um, as you just touched on there, people today will find it hard to appreciate that that wasn't unusual. And actually, what was fairly standard was we'd get to the end of one season, which used to finish back in October, back then, um, very different to today. But in October, we'd have you know a couple of weeks off, and then we'd start testing immediately. And what would be fairly common would be to take that year's car and put the, the, the next year's rear end on it. So we'd already have an engine and perhaps a gearbox rear end ready to go, adapted to fit onto the current chassis. So that was perfectly normal. So we were definitely doing all of that over the, across the winter of 2002. And I think we, I remember having a briefing or a, a chat with some of the engineers, because we had a, a guy called Neil Oatley, um, one of the senior designers at McLaren, who'd been there for a long time. We'd obviously just, uh, had, we had uh, Adrian Newey as well, but we'd also just brought in Mike Coughlin. Um, and so between those three, people within the team were starting to think, there's a lot of chiefs here. You know, Adrian had always been the guy who, who led things in that regard, very successfully, I might add. Uh, and so people were sort of asking questions. How on earth can these three big names of design start to, to put one car forward? And then it became clear that actually it wasn't just going to be one car. There was this idea that had been bubbling away that we definitely needed an interim car. And as I say, I don't think too many people were that shocked because the briefing that I remember having a very clear conversation with uh, Neil Oatley, who was actually the guy that had been put onto the the interim car, which is the MP417D. And his explanation of why that had happened was that we were trying to push, as Ed just touched on there, in so many extreme areas with the 18, and it was well worth doing that. If we were going to catch Ferrari, which was our ultimate goal, we had to go way beyond what people considered normal. And therefore, it was perfectly reasonable to say we might have to wait a little bit longer for it. It was probably doubly sensible to start with the old car as well because in 2003 you had the the part firm regs didn't you so yeah. people like you couldn't dismantle the car and rebuild right. it overnight and although you actually got to go to bed <laughs> yeah it's my favorite rule they've ever introduced <laughs> but although that meant that you couldn't have all the, the qualifying special parts that also meant that because you weren't going through that process of dismantling and rebuilding the reliability questions so i guess actually a, a proven package that you knew even though you had to adapt it a little bit for for qualifying trim was more reliable, sensible, and, and there was just less chance of you engineering in problems by exactly. over-engineering it. I totally agree. It seemed very sensible at the time. And as you just mentioned, Glenn, you know, early runnings of that, that interim car were pretty positive. You know, it was, a, it was a decent car. 2002 wasn't a successful season for us, but it was a decent car in that it responded pretty well to changes. For us, we'd all become very familiar with it. So actually, that's not a bad way to continue with a car that's great, that we all know, and we know how it works and how it responds. That gives you a good starting point. At the beginning of a season is always the most fragile point, you know, for a race team because when you're introducing something new at the beginning of a season when everyone's been away for months, that typically is where you have your, your most nightmare-ish times. You know, you're, you're there all night in Australia because everything's brand new. It takes a while to settle in. So to go for those first three ra a few races with a known quantity seemed like it made a lot of sense to us. Yeah, now you mentioned Ferrari there. 2002 was one of their most dominant seasons. And Ron actually talked about this in January as well. And uh, But his take on Ferrari's dominance in 2002 was that he felt Williams and McLaren, the main rivals of the time, had, uh, had dropped the ball. He said that McLaren made Ferrari look better than they should have done in 2002. And talking about the O2 car, it's not one that Newey talks much about in his book, which is excellent. If, if listeners haven't read that book, you should definitely check it out. A lot of interesting stuff in there. Uh, Adrian calls it a clumsy design, not one of my best. Uh, and he partly blames that on the fact that it was the first car produced by, I think what you hinted at there, the, the matrix management structure. Lots of, lots of chiefs. all uh, And as you said, there's perhaps some confusion inside the team as well as who's really in control. Now, Adrian says that came about after he tried to go to Jaguar in 2001 and that uh, Ron was not that impressed with being held to ransom as he saw it to, to stay that, that summer. So he basically said to Martin Whitmarsh, you create a structure now where this can never happen again. One person can never be that controlling. And Newey, understandably, as someone who liked to be in charge, called that and this is the quote, an unnecessarily complex and wretchedly unworkable system of department heads and performance creators. Uh, and he said, it didn't work. 
Um, so firstly, would you guys agree that Ferrari's performance in 2002 was exaggerated by the rivals dropping the ball, or did Ferrari move things on? Well, I'll just say that um, you'll never, or very rarely, will you ever hear Ron Dennis saying that Ferrari were amazing and they deserved <laughs> to win that championship by throwing it back to being our fault and, yeah. and handing it over. I think that's very much more Ron-like. But um, we made mistakes. I, I can never take a championship away from anybody because I think if anybody wins a Formula One World Championship, they must deserve it. And they dominated so much that I think it's hard to disagree with that. Mm. Yeah, we should know Michael Schumacher was on the podium in every single race in 2002, which is just unprecedented levels of, of reliability. So not only was the car competitive, the whole execution, the strategy, it was all, it was all there, wasn't it? So I think it was, it was understandable why McLaren felt they needed to raise their game on, on all levels. So that, that was a logical conclusion. But yeah, to say the others handed it to them is probably slightly overstating it. But that was also against the backdrop of all the rule changes, wasn't it? The, that he was trying to push against because they changed the point system in order to try and mean there isn't this level of domination and I think that was probably one of the areas that Ron Dennis was trying to get at to say no we don't need to change all this because we don't want to change it it's just that we weren't very good yeah I think if anything the, the year that the rivals dropped the ball was probably 2004 rather than 02 but Mark I could see you uh, getting ready to chime in when we were talking about the matrix management structure so before we get back to 2003 it's not actually that long ago that McLaren in its current form has finally got rid of that structure and seemed quite proud in declaring it do you think that a lot of the troubles maybe that McLaren has had for in recent years could be traced back to that, the problems created by that structure? I, I definitely think a lot of McLaren's more recent troubles can be traced back to some of the turbulence within the management structure. Whether it's directly relatable to that, I'm not sure. But I think what happened back then, you know, you've got Ron Dennis, who's pretty old school. Adrian was also pretty old school. Martin Whitmarsh was much less so. He'd come from another industry where things were perhaps a bit more advanced in terms of their management structures. And he tried to implement some of that. I think Adrian, as you said, who was a very much a controlling person in, in terms of Old school Formula One worked best when one person ran the team. You know, when Eddie, Eddie Jordan was running Jordan and when Ron was running us and, and Frank was running Williams, you know, the name above the door kind of meant something back then and it sort of worked. I think in modern, the modern world in general, I don't think that necessarily now is, is the case. So you have to have a, a much more advanced structure. The teams are much bigger. There's lots more going on. So I do think actually that the idea of moving towards something that was a bit more kind of corporate was probably a, a sensible move long term, but it just didn't fit. It was We were in that early transition phase where there was still some resistance to it. And when you've got resistance to it from people like Adrian, who are pretty much at the top of that tree, it's probably destined to, to cause problems, isn't it? <laughs> I think also there was this wider picture and obviously Newey had tried to leave McLaren to, to hook up with Bobby Rahal previously and McLaren had to accommodate him to... Wasn't he going to design boats? Well, there was, yeah, there was that America's Cup project yeah, was the thing that right. was one of the things that was meant to attempt to him. Although, actually, I asked Newey about this some years ago, and he said the main reason that the Jaguar thing didn't happen was that it was all done through Bobby Rahal, and he knew Rahal was about to be ousted. So he also argues he could see Jaguar and the way Ford was dealing with it. It was not, not necessarily the environment he wanted. But, yeah, Newey, there'd always been a little bit of fractiousness between Newey and McLaren, and there was this famous case of him expressing his individuality by painting his office duck blue, I remember, was the, uh, was the colour which uh, Ron Dennis supposedly didn't, uh, didn't like. So this, this management structure was also partly to prevent individuals being too overpowered, shall we say, and too indispensable, which is fine, but I think if you're going to have a, a technical structure, it needs to be because it's the right technical structure. And it was imported from aerospace, as you suggested, Mark, and aerospace timelines, decision-making, very, very different to, to Formula One. We also see this when when automotive industry road car models get bought in, when you can spend six months deciding what door handle you're going to have on your, on your BMW. Good point. Exactly, yeah. So <laughs> Toyota. I, yeah, exactly. So the Toyota way didn't work out well. But yeah, that, that's kind of the background. So this, the, the one thing I will say is it's very tempting to say, yeah, Adrian knew he's a genius, let him do what he wants. But he's always excelled when he's had a kind of sense-checking force. Jeff Willis has done this in the past. Patrick Head going back at Williams. So... I think to say that you just have to let Adrian Newey completely roam free is overstating it. But yeah, in the correct structure, playing to his strengths, as Red Bull have showed, he can be absolutely astonishing. So yeah, you would say it was the wrong environment for him, although much perhaps as Adrian Newey would probably think it would have been brilliant if he'd had 
full executive power over absolutely everything. I think you do need a little bit of that to get the best out of Newey. And I think probably now with a few more, a few more years' experience, he'd probably quite happily accept that as well. And I, and I also think, to bring this back to the MP418, I, and I've only just twigged this really, but I think probably a lot of our problems during that period were perhaps linked to that in that with Adrian being a little upset with this new management structure, he still wanted that control. And, and one of the reasons that, that, 100% one of the reasons that we maintained the direction with the 18 for so long was because Adrian was, Adrian was adamant that this was how we had to do it. And so many other people were seeing that actually there might be another way and maybe we should put this you know, indefinitely on hold. But Adrian was adamant he was right and he, want, you know, he wanted that control and, and ultimately he pushed it way further into the season than perhaps was, was right until at the end Ron had to put his foot down and say, no, no more. Yeah, it's a fascinating ongoing story. And in pre-season, uh, like you said, all was going well with the 17 or 17D as it was to become. And actually Michael Schumacher at Ferrari's launch, in which I think was in February, said he was concerned about McLaren with the updated car because it was going so well. Ed, you mentioned rule changes for 2003, and we'll have a very quick detour here because there was a whole load of rule changes off the back, really, of Ferrari's dominance from the previous season. So for those of you who don't remember, this is when we got one-shot qualifying, cars qualifying on their race start fuel loads, which is partly what contributed to the Park Ferme rules. Uh, so the Sunday morning warm-up is gone, uh, which I still think is a shame. New point system with a smaller gap between first and second, another thing aimed at trying to stop Schumacher winning the title too early but strangely yeah Frank Williams and Ron were at the front of complaining about these rules that almost looked like they were designed to help Ferrari's rivals because they didn't want things to change and uh, and one thing they criticized Max Mosley for at the time who was FIA president was that they felt that he was making rule changes that they said were based on the assumption that the automotive manufacturers will not consistently support Formula One and they accused the FIA of being hostile towards manufacturers. At the time, F1 was awash with manufacturers. A lot of them did go away later in that decade. So on a very brief detour, which is what we love on this programme, was, did Max have a point, perhaps trying to safeguard against an exodus of manufacturers? Yes, because of the manufacturers that were around at the time, only two of them remained continuous, Mercedes and Ferrari, you know, Renault, constantly comes and goes, Honda, you know, there was a very good reason for that. Ford, of course, had, had, had Jaguar. So I think it was very, very sensible. And there was, there was this kind of dynamic with the big teams and the independent teams. There was talks to try and create kind of a, a, a war chest to help the independent teams as well, which the manufacturers would pay into, which the manufacturers sort of thought they liked the idea of because it would get them on side and then eventually they decided that actually paying money to other people wasn't something they liked doing. So that fell apart. Um, and we're only a year away from the Grand Prix Manufacturers Association, of course, being formed in 2004. And that, that breakaway was, was a constant threat all the way up until about 2009. Uh, that kind of finally went away. So, yeah, Mosey's absolutely right in this case. And if we remember, in 2002, some of the rule changes... Max Mosey had this strategy of throwing out mad rule changes in the hope that people would come back to agree sensible ones. So some of the mad changes, like in 2002, they were suggesting driver rotation, so like... One week, Michael Schumacher's in a Ferrari. Next week, it's his turn in the Minardi, which I think everyone found... The idea is quite fun, but... I'd it, love to it, see that. <laughs> it, it would be, it's a fun idea. It's a great great think piece, but never realistic. But, yeah, there, there was this big drive to try and... And F1's still doing this today, to reconcile big-budget manufacturer teams with small independent teams, or smaller independent teams. There's not really any small F1 teams anymore in real terms. To reconcile the objectives, because today you've got a Williams that has to be making commercial sense and pay for everything you've got other teams that have got heavy shareholder investment so yeah it's it's a very complicated question and Mosley was was quite correct because you cannot rely on the manufacturers Mercedes have been very reliable Ferrari have been very reliable but beyond that they come and go and they they're so prone to changes of economic situations to changes of board leadership all it all it takes is a couple of changes on a board and suddenly you go from I don't know four three in favor to the other way around and and, that, and that's why it's so unstable you do you need a bunch of teams 10 teams i think that in 2003 and that's that's a good number to, to want to to keep yeah let's get back to talking about mclaren shall we because the season starts and mclaren wins the first two races one of which of course was kimmy with your car uh mark and it could have been the third race as well because the brazilian grand prix was briefly celebrated by mclaren before he had to give the trophy back yeah. owing to some confusion over 
the count back and for, because of a red flag late in the race. And of course, Giancarlo Fisichella's on fire Jordan ended up uh, getting to win that race. But Thanks to a great strategy call from the races, Gary Anderson. Of course, yeah. And, uh, Gary will be explaining that at some point in more depth for us, I'm sure. It came to him in a dream, the strategy. Not a joke. Not a joke. Okay, we'll come back to that. That's amazing. Um, but the success for McLaren early in the season prompted Dennis to say in public, uh, this allows us to be even more selective about the race introduction of the MP4 18. And speculation is mounting now that the 18 is going to be delayed further beyond. I think Imola was the initial target, which would have been around round four. So at this point, you have Ron and Martin Whitmarsh saying, uh, we're going to keep developing the 17D because it's competitive and we want to keep it competitive. And then after Brazil, we get uh, McLaren confirming an indefinite delay to the 18. Uh, and as a statement that says we will have a low-key launch shortly followed by a test within the next month. So at this point, we're sort of talking maybe late April. Uh, Whitmarsh then says again, we will only race the MP4 18 when it's faster and at least as reliable as the 17D. As a result, at this time, we are not in position to provide an exact date. Uh, then Imola comes around, the initial uh, point that we've pushed back from. And at this point, Ron says the 18 will debut no sooner than Canada and no later than Silverstone. So that's a window between mid-June and mid-July. Intern I'll ask Ed for the external position in a minute, but internally, what's going on at this point? Are any alarm bells about why the car isn't ready or is everything being explained well and making sense? No, no, we knew exactly why the car wasn't ready. And it was, it was I mean, yeah, alarm bells, 100%, because um, although I was on the race team that year, so I wasn't doing most of the testing with the, with the 18, obviously we had a separate test team back then. So another bunch of mechanics and engineers, you know, their own trucks, tools, everything. So it was a completely separate setup. But they were spending all of their time with the 18 almost at that point. And the reports, and these are all my friends, of course, that work on the other side of the, the, the factory to where we were working in the race bays. They were coming back with the most horrendous reports. And, and the stories I was hearing from them, I mean, they already hated it after the first <laughs> test because it was, you know, it was difficult to work on. It was coming back from pretty much every single run on fire. I mean, almost guaranteed. They were meeting the cars that came back into the pit lane with a fire extinguisher every single run. Um, any changes, you know, when it did run, any changes that they had to make were really hard to get to. And, you know, you had to sort of remove huge chunks of, of things like suspension or take the floor off to make what normally would be really simple uh, setup changes on any other car. So that would take a huge amount of time. It, had, it was so complex and so fragile that as a mechanic, that translates simply into loads of really hard work. And um, so for that reason, we knew that it, was, it wasn't working out. And, and those things are all convenience things that, that you can get over all of that. But when it's failing out on track or, or sometimes failing even before it left the garage with things burning or, or, or failing, we knew that the car was in trouble. And, uh, and I, think, I think at that point, my memory and certainly the guys from the test team were all sort of almost putting money on the fact it would never turn a wheel at that point. It was so disastrous. Uh, and that's, you know, based on experience of doing this every single year where you bring out a new car and, yeah, you have teething troubles and, and sometimes they're worse than others. Never experienced anything like that. And what about before it ran? When there were all these explanations about why it hadn't even launched yet, it's not on track, were, were there any reasons behind the scenes for that or is it just Adrian still tinkering? No, I, I, was, I was really excited about the car because, as I say, I had this big... I remember clearly having this big conversation with Neil Oatley about it and, and some of the thought, thought process behind it. And, look, I love innovation. I, I was really proud that McLaren were pushing to this extent. If we were going to overhaul Ferrari, who the year before had been so far ahead, we needed to go extreme. So that was great for me. I loved a bit of technical innovation. And I was looking at some of these ideas, like the exhausts coming out through under the gearbox into the floor, which we'd never seen before. Uh, of course, went on to be very successful many years later. But back then, you know, that was a great... Uh, the, the theory behind it was brilliant, and I loved that stuff. So I was, I was kind of really excited about the prospect of the car. It was just the reality of when it turned up that, that didn't quite match up. Yeah, and, and Newey talks before the launch. He says, we'll be testing it in a not-too-distant future. And, but he was already urging caution at this point because he said, then you've got to allow yourself debugging time and you've got to be confident in reliability before racing it. So perhaps, Ed, Newey knew that he was pushing the limits here and it wouldn't be a case of, we've rolled it out, it's, it's had a shakedown, let's take it to a race. 
Yeah, I get the feeling it was one of these more conceptual things from Newey that it was kind of right. This is this is the great leap forward, so it'll take as long as it as long as it takes. But it, it was becoming clear even on the outside that there were serious problems. Any project that keeps getting pushed back is a problem. Mm. And you know, two weeks for a new Formula One car being pushed back is like a, a big building project being pushed back a year, effectively. You know, those are the time scales that you're kind of working on. And it was clear that the progress was was uh, was glacial in terms of, of fixing the problems and gradually you hear about all these difficulties and um, and the, the crashes that happened. There was a wonderful photo that went around actually after one of the big crashes. I think it was one of Wurtz's, one, uh, Wurtz's big crash maybe. There was this great photo of the wreckage and there's there's one of the McLaren guys pointing directly at the camera because they're saying, oh, it's someone over there taking a photo of it. So obviously <laughs> they were trying to keep it quiet yeah. and all these th- things just, just leak out. And as soon as you get a car that doesn't, that you know doesn't run that well, that's very late, that tends to hit things that the drivers don't really like that you know people in the team talk to people on the outside so it it very quickly emerges that there's there's some grand folly going on here and I don't think anybody seriously expected it to to appear once you once you get sort of past that Silverstone deadline it's it's getting pretty unlikely I think um two things first of all that crash you just talked about there there was there's some video which I'm sure will forever it's probably been destroyed now but it's from the uh, we, we we took the car to Paul Ricard for one of the early tests and Alex Burtz was at the wheel and had I think the biggest crash I've ever seen in my life because we had CCTV cameras behind the closed doors test but there was CCTV cameras at the circuit and we got the footage from that it was like an aeroplane wreckage it was the, the, it was a high speed crash and he clipped a barrier on the way in and the car just disintegrated into so many pieces but carried on for as long as you could see and there was this wreckage strewn for what seemed like miles and it was i mean honestly as i say one of the highest the biggest crashes i've ever witnessed and this footage was unbelievable uh, obviously never saw the light of day um, so that was that thing but the other thing is the um to, to go back to the the sort of delayed introduction don't forget, it's not that unusual to... If we'd been on a, on a regular time scale, if you like, trying to get the car ready for the first race, we'd have been running it long before Christmas back then. So that's a couple of months of testing, which would have been perfectly normal to get problems ironed out before you get to Australia in, in March. So to start then in, you know, introducing the car much you know, well after the start of the season didn't seem that unusual still at that point to start thinking, well, a couple of months, three months into the season, and plus we had a car that was great already, so we didn't have the pressure of achieving a certain race deadline. So even at that point, nothing seemed untoward in terms of, yeah, let's give ourselves an extra, an extra couple of races. It, it, that's fine because the concept is still great. Yeah. I think we're spoiled these days, aren't we, with cars that roll out in the middle of February, do now six days of testing, and they pack them up and they go to Australia. And, and the lap counts uh, this year in 2020 were phenomenal for most of the teams. It's just it's amazing how things have moved on. Pressure started to ramp up on McLaren at the Spanish Grand Prix because that's when a new Ferrari came out and it, and it won, won its first race. And Coulthard said that McLaren's only hope in the championship is to get the new car out as soon as possible. Uh, but Newey counters this, saying that if we rush it out, we shoot ourselves in the foot. Um, but you talked there, Mark, about things going quite well with the 17. Do you think, do you think that influenced um, sort of the, the attitude maybe from management and from Newey that there wasn't a hurry for the 18? Because the championship's going quite well and Kimi's still in contention in this early phase with the 17D. So do you think if maybe if the 17D had proved to be quite a way off the pace... Would there have been more pressure maybe internally at McLaren to yeah. rush the 18? 100%, yeah. And I think, um, you know, race results were great. I mean, this is a, first of all, we had a driver in Kimi who's only in his second year at the team, just got his first race win, which is a huge deal, you know. Um, I vaguely remember the celebrations after that. <laughs> um, but it was huge, you know. And yet, and then after that, we were finishing second, you know, third, pretty much week in, week out. And as you say, I think we were leading the championship for a while. So that was unprecedented for, for a kid of this, you know, newness to Formula One I guess and certainly to McLaren so things were great and and actually at that point there was a good argument to say we could have just this if this was our new car if the MP417 was the 18 brilliant you know and I think you touched on it there Ferrari brought something new out which looked great and back then of course the rate of development was very different to the way it is today in that I know today we're always bringing parts to the racetrack but back then we were developing everything there were no restrictions on engines you know We'd have a new engine every race for Mercedes, which was a big step forward every time. We'd be getting new tyres. You know, everything was changing on a, on a pretty regular basis. So 
it wasn't this very sort of slow, gradual, incremental development. It was sometimes huge leaps. To see Ferrari turn up with something big, and given that we were in a car that was in its second year of development, I think we knew at that point there was limited scope to develop the 17D too much further. And we needed to go probably by the end of the season quite a long way further than where we were now. But for all that, the point situation, Raikkonen was never not within striking distance of Schumacher. He was always within, within a win. So I think it would have been logical to bring a car that you couldn't be convinced was going to be reliable. You might have thought if he was 40 points behind and not in contention to get podiums and wins, you think, well, we might as well just test in public even if it burns down after two laps. So every time we'll at least learn something and uh, now to refine it for next year. But it, it, yeah, I, I think the, the logic was until you could convincingly argue that the 18 was A, reliable and B, consistently fast enough let alone drivable enough to convince the drivers they want to be in it, it made perfect sense to keep plugging on with Raikkonen because you know, he came very, very, very close to winning that championship. Yeah, we'll come back to the drivability of the car. It finally launches on May the 20th, and I think we'd all agree it delivered on the promise of looking radically different. We quite often get told today that you know this car's going to have this brilliant new concept on it and we can't see the difference, but you really could with the MP418. And Newey said at the launch, this car has had more research put into it than any other car he's worked on. A lot of praise for Mercedes for meeting his packaging demands, which were quite extreme for the time. And he also said, uh, he said, for me, it's been frustrating being this long in the berth, but I think we underestimated the difficulty of manufacturing while racing the existing car and the drain on resources that that causes. That's been a learning curve in production and manufacturing terms rather than actual design, but we hope the car is worth the wait. Ed, I was really impressed when I saw the car. I, you know, I thought, this looks cool. This, this feels like a step change for F1. What did you think when you first saw the images of it? Yeah, it, it absolutely is. It's... There's quite a big change in Formula One cars between the early part of the 2000s and then you get sort of 2005 through to 2008, the kind of packaging and all the detail work and the sort of chimneys, the aero flicks, etc. This was, this was kind of the start to that. So it was a pointer in the right direction. And as we said before, everything was basically the right idea there. It was just all a little bit unrefined and a bit throw everything at it and try and make it work. And, the, and they, they ended up kind of chasing their tails on it. So yeah, it was... It, it was a spectacular and impressive car and you can see just looking at the side pod compactness how big a step it was and of course if you compact uh, the way you're packaging it that's more areas for for aero to exploit so theoretically it produced the downforce just not very uh, consistently so yeah it, in that, in that regard it, it delivered on the the kind of mission statement if you like for the car to be a big step forward and probably in the long term it wasn't but within that time scale of when it needed to be good it, it was just too much you do wonder what might have happened if say the 18 had had sort of half of the things on it and then done the next half the following year perhaps 2003 2004 could have gone a little bit differently yeah the thing with adrian newey is that he it's very hard to ever get adrian to compromise on anything and uh, and that's that's even if he's working on the slight the, the tiniest little bracket that holds a front wing flap or whether he's designing an entire car he will not compromise and it's you know his his goal you know is normally centered around aerodynamics that's his primary focus most of the time everything else in terms of things like practicality all comes second i mean i remember asking adrian once and i'd been frustratingly struggling with a barge board which back then adrian had designed so that this huge barge board where the front suspension member used to go through the middle of it and instead of having a slot on the barge board so you could change it and slot it over the suspension we had to take the whole suspension off, feed it through the barge board and then put it on. Which, and we were damaging these barge boards every five minutes. So it's hugely frustrating. And I remember saying to Adrian when I was in the midst of this, another one of these changes as he wandered over. I said, Adrian, just out of interest, you know, when you're designing these, how much as a percentage roughly would you say of the process goes into you know, our side, the practicality of changing it? And he said, none. Yeah. <laughs> Quite <laughs> simply, none. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, and you could see that. And I think the A-team was, was kind of like that. There was no thought for making changes, no thought for people working on it, no thoughts for even some of the temperature management situations we suffered with because it was all focused on making it as aerodynamically superior as he could do. And I think in that sense, he achieved some amazing things, as I say, that went on to change the shape of Formula One's future. It's just that the practicalities let it down. Yeah, this was, this was kind of the prototype in the end, wasn't it? And so the 18 has launched, the 17D is still racing, and Schumacher wins two of the next three races and finally takes the lead from Kimi 
in the championship, but all is relatively calm on the surface at McLaren. Uh, the team says we're still leaning towards the cautious route of introducing the MP418 later. And as the summer started to roll on, that was when these other problems we've hinted at started to come out. So we know that when they started pushing for performance, Raikkonen and Verts both had big accidents in the car. Uh, McLaren puts out a public statement relating to one of those accidents, I think, where they actually blamed it on driver error. Yeah, and, I, and I'll tell you now, that was, I'm pretty sure that was Kimi's accident. Right. Uh, Kimi doesn't take well to having something that wasn't his fault blamed on him. And, uh, and I can tell you inside, he was very angry at that. And, um, and I'm pretty sure I remember that was the only time he ever drove the car because he, I think he point blank refused to get in it after that. Not just because it was a terrible car, but because McLaren had shifted blame towards him when he was adamant it wasn't his fault. I think it's one of those things that you don't necessarily have to have an outright mechanical failure for it not to be driver error, shall we say, if, you know, if, if you're getting... St- and the car was stalling, and Newey accepts this um, in retrospect, there was quite a big stalling problem. So one minute you're in a corner, the next minute the, the downforce goes, and then suddenly, yeah, you're, you're going to have, have a big accident, and that's the instability that the drivers will have hated. And that's probably the thing the drivers hate most, yeah. and it's all very well having peak downforce when everything's right, and, you know, in the wind tunnel, everything's perfect, great, but... Gary Anderson always says you, the driver can only drive to the troughs, otherwise they are going to go off. So, yeah. yeah, again, it's this kind of, you've got halfway there, but you haven't kind of made your great idea work for real-world deployment. Exactly, and I, th- I think we can, uh, we can use Newey's book to, uh, to defend Kimi as well, because Newey said the MP418, once it was on track, he said it turned out to be a problem child. Yet again, I was stuck with a car that was giving good numbers in the wind tunnel and should have been a huge leap forward from the previous year's model, but in fact, it was aerodynamically unstable on track. We had a fabulous new on-site wind tunnel, a car that should have been much quicker than the outgoing 17, yet it was slower and the drivers were saying it was unstable. So Newey gets to work on trying to work out why the drivers are saying this, and then he says that we felt we'd understood the aerodynamic problem, which was related to the shape of the chassis and the front of the side pod overloading the vortex that forms off a delta wing just in front of the side pod causing the vortex to be unstable and burst in certain conditions. That problem, he said, could be alleviated by trimming the wing, but that cost you downforce. So the solution Newey identifies at this point, which he says is summer 2003, was to reshape the chassis and the side pod to alleviate the high-pressure stagnant air that was forming above that wing. He says that required a new chassis. And uh, in public at this stage, McLaren was saying... We will only introduce the new car once we are confident it will enhance our championship program, which sounds much more like a McLaren statement. But do you think that if Newey's identified that problem and is saying you've got to redesign the chassis, is that the point that the A version of the car is doomed? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, yes, probably, yeah. Because, and also, don't let's not underestimate the, the scale of redesigning the chassis at that point. That's, a, that's huge. You know, you'd never do that in modern Formula One. Um, and so I think, you know, we had, if you think back just a couple of years ago when McLaren struggled massively, was eight, uh, seven, eight, 18. Yeah. It's a few well, years you can pick from. Well, yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> 18, let's say. It's all been downhill since you left. <laughs> I didn't want to say it. <laughs> <laughs> um, 2018, McLaren struggled massively. They had a, a huge inbuilt aerodynamic deficiency with their chassis. Now, back in the early 2000s, because that was identified pretty early, you probably would have redesigned the chassis and overcome that and, and continued with a much better season. But today you can't do that. Budgets are not quite the same. You've got to be, you know, the, the focus is already on next year's car much more. So that's a huge undertaking for Adrian to say, to say that. And I think, yes, it probably does. As soon as you start, as soon as the, the chief designer says we need a new chassis, the first one is definitely dead, yeah. you know. Combined with all the other problems it had, I think it was, it was doomed, as you say. And the trouble is that impacts the following season as well because the 18 basically becomes the 19, doesn't it? And because they don't solve that problem. Yeah. You could almost have justified the whole Farrago of, of 2003 and the 18 if, if the following year's car had really been, been there. And, it, and ultimately, only for the first half of the season, it really wasn't because it still had some of those same yeah. problems. So I think that's the area where Newey probably was right because that was the, the fundamental problem. We talk about the instability. And, you know, if you've got a very high-energy vortex that's that's being eliminated, that's, well, that's not being eliminated, but that's dissipating at times you don't want it to, that's where your downforce goes, and then that's why you're having your, your big crashes. So it almost felt like a bit of a halfway house 
maybe you wouldn't do the redesign if you were completely scrapping that project and doing a completely new car, but you're kind of throwing good, good money after bad at that point and not learning the lessons. So I think that's when you is absolutely spot on. I suspect, anyway. You and might and have a different also, view, Mark. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And, and also, don't forget, I think, but I'm pretty sure I'm right in saying by that point, we'd already redesigned the way that the exhausts uh, exited because the initial plan and the initial car had them exiting under the gearbox out the floor, blowing into the diffuser, which was a great concept and, and went on, you know, as I say, went on to, to be very successful in the Red Bull days. But it, it, as I say, it was, it was the overheating troubles were so bad that the floor was catching fire all the time. So very quickly, I think after just one test, I think, we redesigned the exhaust package to come out the top. Now that, even in itself, that's not a small, that's not just a case of repackaging, that's a case of Mercedes having to do quite a lot of work to accommodate that. So we'd already made some fairly major compromises to get to that point, and then to say, actually guys, you know, the chassis isn't working, that's huge, and that was a bombshell. Yeah, and that, that causes huge ripples through the months that we're about to approach. But at this point, um, Martin Whitmarsh says something quite interesting, and this is the first time we hear a mention of 2004 in this whole story. And he says, uh, we have every expectation that we can make a step with this car, but if we don't, then we're going to be even stronger next year. So that feels to me like they're already thinking, we might have to spend a bit longer developing this. Uh, and Newey says at the time, because the car is going to be introduced so late, it can race well into 2004, and that he has no intention of beginning to design another car until we've cracked uh, this one. Ron Dennis then comes out shortly after that and says the opposite, saying that the decision has been taken to design a new car for 2004. And as we'll find out, and as you've hinted at there, that doesn't happen, certainly, to begin with. Another story that put the MP418 in the news was crash test failures. This came out quite a few times uh, through its early months when it was testing. But this was another thing that McLaren played down because Whitmarsh's position was... If you pass your crash tests at the first attempt, your car's too heavy and basically too strong. Is that fair? Yeah, I think it is. And it wasn't uncommon to fail crash tests. And I, you know, I was the sort of guy that, you know, although I was a, was a mechanic on the race team, I actually was so interested in the technical side of it all. I spent a lot of time in R&D just whenever I had, you know, 10 minutes, I'd go and see what was, what was cooking up, you know, and it was really interesting. And yeah, it's, it's perfectly common. They used to do dummy crash tests in-house before you then, of course, take it to the FIA for the official one. Very common to be destroying chassis left, right, and centre because you're just the wrong side of that very fine line. Yeah. But absolutely right, you want to be just at the right side of that line because otherwise it's a compromise. Yeah. Although probably not ideal when you've got drivers being chucked at the scenery regularly, because of course, while today and in recent years you've had to pass the crash tests before you can participate in testing, back then you didn't have to. So <laughs> I don't know if that delighted the drivers, given that they they had some pretty big impacts as well. So yeah, just. Uh, you know, it's one of those things as well. When you're trying to prove a car and, and make it work, you can probably get away with just running heavier bits, and then yeah. you can you can work on your nose box or whatever and make it make it work better. So I guess it's just an extra layer of mm. of complication, isn't it? That you you just don't want, especially if there's going to be compromises in terms of weight configuration, etc. And you can't hit those original targets for the size of the of any crash structures in the car. Yeah, salute then to Alex Verts driving these cars that haven't passed their crash tests and being flung at the scenery occasionally, as I think Ed put it there. But there's a, there's a good quote from Dennis in the summer where he says, there's no pressure, and I think we've covered this really, of what you've told us, Mark, there's no pressure from anybody other than the media to introduce the car early. But always the media's fault. It is always the media's fault, absolutely. But he does say, uh, we certainly need a new car to win next year. The big question is whether we need it to win this year. And... This is a really interesting point, I think, actually. Do we, do we all think that, actually, with the benefit of hindsight, the best thing McLaren could have done to try and win the 2003 championship with Raikkonen would have been to focus all of its development efforts on the 17D? You know, Raikkonen didn't lose the championship by many points in the end, I think. Like a couple Two. of points? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So do we think that, actually, if McLaren had gone, you know what, throw everything at the 17D, we'll come back to this, would Raikkonen have won that championship? I'm going to say yes. And, and I think um, not just because of, of McLaren having to compromise development. And if you think about this now in modern terms, you know, we're in a period in 2020 where the teams are having to balance their kind of development with the 2021 car, which is a huge change. That's perhaps comparable. The level of difference that we're going to in 2021, that's not a huge, you know, huge chunk away from the difference that we were talking about with the MP418. It was groundbreaking uh, back then. 
So what we did back then was we just built two teams to develop. As I say, Adrian Newey and Mike Coughlin set about making the MP418. Uh, Neil Oatley built a smaller team to, to operate the MP417D. And so we were hampered in terms of how much scope we could develop the, 40, the 17D, partly because it was in its second year, partly because we had a smaller team. But even more so than that, and I think this is the thing that stopped us winning the championship, was Mercedes had to stop their development on the engine for the 17D because the engine for the 18 was, I mean, completely different and had to be completely, you know, packaged very differently. It was a, a different animal altogether. So all of their focus, because Adrian and Ron had been saying, look, this is coming, this is what we're going to finish the season with, everything at Mercedes went into that MP418 engine. And therefore, as I said, touched on earlier, the vast chunks of development that were fairly common race to race even in engine development back then simply weren't happening on the 17 engine. For me, if we had been able to develop in that at the same rate, then yeah, absolutely we could have had a proper assault on the championship. It's also worth noting you don't have to look too hard to find two points even with the car as was. There were plenty of occasions if he hadn't sped in the pit lane in Australia right back at the start of the season he'd probably won that race there's extra points if he hadn't had the the engine problem and then crashed at the start in Barcelona there was another engine problem later and so, so there's all these little things and it became really really close to, to winning that championship one of the interesting things though I have heard about that year from probably from people like, like yourself as well but those who were involved in the race project that year say that actually the 17D was a really fun year because the technical top brass were all obsessed with the 18 and you were actually left alone just to get the best out of the package you had. And it was actually kind of quite a, a pure I think that's race a really team good environment. Point. I think that's a really good point. And I, and I to that's absolutely right because we knew the car so well and it worked so well. It did what we wanted. And as engineers, you know, when, you, when the driver comes in and says it's got a bit of understeer here, you need to know what to do. And we knew exactly what to do with that car. We knew what, if we changed this, this would happen. And that's not always the case with every, you know, even towards the end of a season with some cars, you don't still know it can be slightly more unpredictable, but this was a great car in that it responded perfectly to whatever we needed. So you're right. And the other reason it was so much fun was that Kimi was just having the time of his life. Um, you know, he was being successful. He was breaking the mold of McLaren drivers at that time. And he was loving life. And so as a consequence, we were all loving life too. <laughs> oh, it sounds like a lot of fun. Now, in the summer, there was a gentleman's agreement between the teams to have a seven-week testing ban. Which is Imagine that, a gentleman's agreement. I know, Formula terrible one. timing for McLaren, obviously, when they need to get the 18 out on track, really, to see if they can solve the problems. But around the same time, you have the Hungarian Grand Prix. Fernando Alonso takes his first win, but Raikkonen's second, and Schumacher was lapped in eighth place. And that meant that over the previous four races, Raikkonen had outscored Schumacher 19 points to 14. So the championship really feels alive here. And that summer test ban ended with a test at Monza ahead of the Italian Grand Prix. And initially McLaren was saying, you know, there's going to be a fleet of MP418s there and this is where it's all going to run. But then Ron says before that test, we're focused on improving the performance of the current car and the engine package for Monza. We're confident we're going to make a step. We have an upgrade to the 17D that is clearly designed to enhance our competitiveness. It's true to say we are concentrating our efforts on the 17D. Will the 18 race? Highly unlikely. There's never actually a formal announcement or communication that the 18 doesn't race, but that's pretty much the last we hear of it during this season publicly. So let's take this as a point where we look at the fact that it didn't race in 03 before we have a brief look at what happened at the start of 04. The car doesn't race. Raikkonen almost wins the championship. Were McLaren right, Ed, not to race this car in 2003? Yeah, they were unquestionably right. I think it made perfect sense to keep going. They almost won the championship, after all, with the, with the 17D. And clearly, the 18 still had its problems. It's not even one of those things. Even if they'd had the seven weeks to test in, that's not going to eliminate the problems because it wasn't kind of a setup thing or an understanding thing or just a, you know, even if you've just got some overheating things and bits and pieces, you can solve that. But if you've got a fundamental aerodynamic problem and you don't fix it, then you're going to still have it. And then drivers have to go to Monza with a fundamental aero problem. That's, that's going to still be there. So, yeah, I think it would have been illogical, like I said before, maybe if they were nowhere and there was nothing to fight for, they might have had a go and just thought, well, we'll learn something. But, yeah, the fact Raikkonen came so close to winning the championship. And of course, given Schumacher had a bit of a nightmare at, at Suzuka in the last round with Hick to Kumasato, etc. It's one of his worst ever drives. Yeah, yeah it's so, so, so close. And I think it's 
when you've got a championship that's only two points separated, you, you're not even in the realms of, well, if this big thing had been done differently, it's a million tiny things mm. that make that swing. And, and, and that basically, effectively, McLaren did win the championship that year because it was only two points. So I think in terms of the decisions made with that car, other than perhaps just not worrying about the 18 and putting a little bit more effort into the into the 17D. There wasn't actually much else that, that, that could have been done. Certainly, if Raikkonen had been thrown into the 18 at Monza, I have no doubt that he would not have gone to Suzuka with a, any hope of the championship. No, I mean, it would have never left the garage. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I remember going into, uh, just because to pick up on that, the aero problems were one thing, but there were so many more than that as well. It had suspension issues, you know, that were, it, was fra- it was a fragile car because... You know, as I said, Adrian was so uncompromising in so many areas. And I think, I mean, I remember going into the garage at the test. Uh, just We went along to do some pit stop practice, I think, once, in case it was going to be coming to a race. And the test team had been sat in the garage for so long while the Mercedes guys were trying to fix something. Someone had put a police aware sticker on the, <laughs> on the front of it. And that was, that was pretty common. You know, it just did not run. It didn't turn a wheel. And when it did, it broke, it crashed. The drivers came back scratching their head because they couldn't work it out. So the decision, as Ed touched on there, was out of McLaren's hands. They, they, they simply couldn't have introduced it, you know, during that 2003 season. And as you also said there, the biggest mistake or the, or the one thing that could have changed things might have been actually throwing all efforts to the 17D much earlier than they did. Yeah, now Ed mentioned there that McLaren effectively won the championship, but I bet you didn't get a championship bonus, did you? No, I didn't feel that way. <laughs> <laughs> the season ends, Kimi uh, narrowly misses out on the championship, and Ron's already talking about the MP4 19, which he says will test before the end of the year. And he says, when you see it, you will see that the MP4 18 is its mother. Uh, that's a comment um, Newey counters, shall we say, because his belief is that the 19 was just the 18 and they changed the number. And obviously the 19 started the season very badly as well. But picking up on, you mentioned how many design heads were involved in McLaren at this time. So Newey faced quite a lot of resistance when he wanted to do his chassis change. And he says that Whitmarsh called a meeting of all the sort of department and development heads uh, and, and then did a vote, which Newey was furious about because in his view it was a rigged vote because he knew there were enough people in there who would agree that the chassis shouldn't be redesigned and then uh, he had a couple of people on his side. Uh, he said Mike Coughlin and Peter Prodromu were on his side that it should be redesigned. So that vote ended up uh, resulting in, right, we'll go with the same concept and it will race next year. And I, it feel, we'll come on to this in a different episode, but it feels like this was kind of the beginning of the end for Newey at McLaren because he thought, what's the point of me being technical director or chief designer or whatever you want to call me if... I don't have the final say on stuff. And I think in the end, we have to say that as we will bring the episode to a close, but the bad start for 2004, this comes to what you said, Ed. You said that if 03 had gone badly, they might have been able to take a gamble on running the 18. 04 went badly. So in the end, they let Newey redesign the chassis. And you had an MP419B came in mid-season, was instantly on the pace, and Kimi won a race with it at Spa. So do we think that actually the performance of the 19B ultimately proved that Newey was right? I think, yeah. The, the concept, nodding across both sides yeah, of the table. Yeah, I think, I think yes, he was right. And you, when you said that it was the beginning of the end of the relationship, perhaps, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, I remember that meeting happening. I remember there was so much going on, in the, so much talk in the factory about all these people coming together. God, this looks like a serious meeting. And that's what it was. And, um, you know, the, the relationship between Ron particularly and Adrian was that Ron, uh, that Adrian, you know, wanted to be the be-all and end-all of this. And, and perhaps understandably at that point, because he had, who could argue with his success? Um, the, the times were changing in terms of the way the management structure was happening. And I think he was put out by that. But ultimately, that 19B car was a quick car. I don't think it was a car that was, I mean, it, it wasn't, I don't think it was championship winning material, um, and I, but I do think it was a step forward. And I think the, the point where we talked earlier on by the concepts around the 18, I still to this day stand by the fact they were all good concepts, great thinking, great out of the box thinking. And I love that. And I'm very proud to say that I was part of that McLaren team that pioneered so many things. We just perhaps weren't advanced enough in some of our material science and some of our 
the way aero passed through the internals of the car to make those things work. But the theory was great. And for me, Formula One's all about that. It's, it's pushing the boundaries. Adrian did it. And ultimately, as you say, he was probably proved right to some extent. Certainly as well by the 2005 car, the MP420. There's a straight line to that car. That was probably the best car yeah. of 2005. Mercedes engine and reliability probably cost, well, did cost Raikkonen in the championship that year. Fernando Alonso won it instead. But in terms of that decision-making process, I think this sums up the limitations of a very flat technical structure. When you need something like, a, say, a chassis redesign, that's when a monolithic structure, when there's one person who the buck stops with and say, no, we've got to do this, we will do this, that's where there's a benefit in that. And then it just comes down to whether their judgment is sound or unsound. And when it's Adrian Newey, his judgment is always sound. It just may be a little bit running away with himself. I think, again, since then, he has learned from all this and he's got, he's got better at that. But at no point can you say Newey was wrong in terms of this. And I think if he'd had that technical autonomy just to say, right, well, we're doing this, then... 2004 would certainly have been have been stronger and maybe 2005 the car would have had an even bigger advantage who knows it's very difficult to, to extrapolate but yeah that that's where the limitations uh, come in and that's why coming back to what we were talking about with the matrix management structure if you're introducing that because it's the best way to do things technically the best decisions the best progress that's one thing but if you're doing it more just to avoid the risk of losing somebody you're getting into a territory where you're doing it for the wrong reasons. Because in Formula One in motorsport, everything is defined by performance on track, by winning. That's all that matters. And you've got to be so single-minded. You can't let all these peripheral things pierce into the technical environment, shall we say. And that's probably the mistake uh, McLaren made in, in, in that regard. Then again, they still did need Newey to be a little bit controlled as well. So perhaps they needed maybe to have a Jeff Willis-type figure in there who could just rein in his more aggressive instincts and say well let's just put that to one side for now get this right and then build step by step rather than trying to take four steps in one yeah i agree i mean it's important to note just at the end here that that adrian is not the only guy designing this car it's his concept and he he sets out what his vision is but then he has a whole team of people underneath that have to try and make that work so I certainly don't want to put all the blame on Adrian or all of the uh, the praise because Mike, Mike Coughlin was very heavily involved, wasn't he? Yeah, he's, he was. Yeah, he, he's responsible for. He came for some in specifically for that car, and and um, and I'm sure, and I don't know, you know, Adrian will know far better the, the percentage or the or the roles each of them played within that. But you know, Adrian had a concept, which was a sound concept. Ultimately, him and his entire team of designers couldn't make that work. So it's not all down the success or otherwise is not all down to Adrian. There's also a fine line between genius and disaster, isn't there? And that's that's the case with somebody like Adrian Newey, who's such a visionary. He's always, I mean, people always talk about him being an aerodynamic genius, and yes, he is. But I think Newey's true genius is that he can look at a set of parameters, be it regulations, resources, etc., and he can isolate where the big performance gains are to come. That is why he went down the aero route, because he could see, even in the 1970s, when he was kind of aspiring to get involved in Formula 1, that aero was the great untapped area. And, of course, you should remember, knew he started out in racing. He was a race engineer at the time. You know, he, wasn't, he isn't this pure aero figure. The reason he has become that is because that is where performance is in, in Formula 1. And so... When you get, get somebody like Newey, everything he saw about the, about the 18, everything he was trying to exploit was correct. It's just probably guilty, well, certainly guilty of overreaching. Him and again, him and his team initially, because you've got to understand what's possible and what's a step too far. But you can't say he was wrong. And his record proves that, that Adrian Newey is the guy that, that, that is very, very good at looking at this and, and choosing the, the, the correct way to go. So as much as anything, you say, well, was McLaren guilty of not harnessing you know the greatest probably the greatest technical mind in formula one certainly in terms of visionary uh the, the visionary ability it's down to the team to create the environment that's what red bull has absolutely excelled in they've created a team that was built around the esotericness of new this is a guy who's still got a drawing board in his office still draws by hand and then those go off and i've seen it sat there on the side of the office and he's got all the trade drawers with all the all the, the drawings over it absolutely uh, brilliant but as as is always the case with the genius you've got to you've got to create the structure around that and that's what people like ron dennis martin whitmarsh were there to do and have often done very well perhaps in this area they also drop the ball yeah we'll give the final word to new but a little line from his book um which he doesn't overplay but when talking about the 19b 
and 2004. He says, uh, we could have had a decent season in 2004 if we'd only produced that car in the first place. I think we could apply that to 2003 as well. So thanks very much, Ed and Mark, for coming in to talk about this, this famous unraced car that maybe did race after all. That brings us to the end of another episode of Bring Back V10s. Thanks, listeners, as well, for coming back to 2003 with us. We hope you enjoyed it, and make sure you let us know what you think of the series so far and the ideas you want us to talk about in our final episode by finding at We Are The Race on social media and emailing ask at the-race.com. We'll be back next time for episode four, where we're going to take a look at a specific race, and the one we've chosen is the 1997 Hungarian Grand Prix also known as the race Damon Hill should have won for Arrows. There's a lot to talk about around that weekend, but also some of the off-track goings-on that went on after it, particularly with Hill's contract negotiations for 1998, and you'll be surprised at just how many teams he was talking to. That's going to be a lot of fun, and we look forward to seeing you very soon to talk about it. <laughs>